I mean, it was it was hard to watch, frankly. Uh, not only did I experienced for the first couple months that that I was in Ukraine. Uh, I got there in September 2016. Ukrainians really imploring me, an American, to to pay attention to this stuff and do what I could to bring it up with American audiences. But um, just to to see people shrug off the threat of of Russian interference, um, the threat of Russian aggression, even from a country that was actively fighting a war with Russia was a really stark contrast. The United States and many venerated European democracies are well on their way to a fact-free version of Democracy Light, warns today's guest, Nina Jankowitz. She's the Disinformation Fellow at the Wilson Institute in Washington, D.C., and she has a new book out called How to Lose the Information War, Russia, Fake News, and the Future of Conflict. Russia is well-skilled at taking advantage of existing social fissures in a nation, she says, and now China and other countries are doing it too. Jankowitz's book takes readers on a journey through Estonia, Poland, Georgia, Ukraine, the Czech Republic, and the U.S. to reveal these 21st century warfare tactics. The U.S. can't simply fact-check or troll-ban its way out of the problem, she warns. What will work? I'll let her tell you. But first, a bit of a history lesson. So I want to start with Estonia because I felt like uh, that's where your study of this entire information warfare situation began, and you did a lot of uh, reporting there, although I thought it was great how you said in the book, maybe maybe you were even 10 years late getting to Estonia. But before <laughs> we get to the disinformation part of the book, I think it was important you spent a lot of time in the book preparing people for what was going on in Estonia before the information war from Russia really started. So set the scene in Estonia before all that happened. Right. So Estonia, I often have to put a map uh, in my slide decks when I talk about it, especially with Americans. Um, you know, it's a it's a pretty small nation, 1.3 million people situated on the Baltic Sea. And until 1991, uh, during the Soviet period, was was a part of the Soviet Union. Um, it uh, was the site of the Baltic Sea port for the, the Soviet uh, Navy. And as a result, a lot of Soviet military officers and their families relocated to Estonia during the Soviet period. And when uh, Estonia regained its independence in 1991, the country was left with a 30-ish percent ethnic Russian population who suddenly found themselves in a country that they didn't speak the language of, didn't really identify with the culture, um, and in general were just kind of uh, far removed from what Estonia hoped to be in uh, in the post-Soviet period. And so as um, after time kind of went on a little bit, uh, Russians sort of became second-class citizens in Estonia. Um, Estonia made Estonian the state language. Uh, you had to speak Estonian to get citizenship. And so uh, there were a bunch of people with Russian uh, language, Russian ethnicity who didn't have Estonian citizenship. They had something called a gray passport where uh, they were neither citizens of the new Russian Federation, nor were they citizens of Estonia. They couldn't vote, but they could travel. Um, so it, it was a, a very tense situation. Um, and a lot of these folks sympathized with kind of the, the Soviet mentality, which Russia started to push um, as Estonia 
got closer to Euro-Atlantic integration um, and eventually became members of uh, of the EU and NATO. Um, and of course, these these ethnic Russians uh, were were feeling left behind. They didn't have the same career opportunities. They didn't have the same educational opportunities. In many cases, they were de facto segregated in the country. The the capital of Tallinn has a Russian-speaking district. Uh, Russians are concentrated in a few other cities that are close to the border with Russia. Um, and so they they had real misgivings and that's where Russia saw an opportunity. So we have this minority, but a very sizable minority in Estonia mm -hmm. who feels like second class citizens. And this, the, the, the tension is stirring and, and this is where Russia decides to experiment with uh, modern disinformation. So how did that play out? Yeah, um, I think the most important thing to know about the the context, like the political context, geopolitical context of that era is that Putin had just given a speech at the Munich Security Conference uh, where he basically was disparaging the post-Cold War order and, and what he saw as American hegemony in his and Russia's sphere of influence. So that's where we, we start to see a shadow being cast over Estonia. Um, in 2007, a new government was elected. And over the past couple of years, around a statue in the center of Tallinn, uh, the Bronze Soldier, which was a memorial to Soviet war dead, uh, it had kind of become a flashpoint for clashes between um, folks who were partial to the Soviet Union, uh, usually Russian speakers, and uh, ethnic Estonians who uh, perhaps were a bit on the nationalist side. Um, and this new government decided, you know what, things are getting too tense here. We're going to relocate this statue uh, to a military cemetery on the outskirts of the capital. And Tallinn is quite small, so that doesn't <laughs> mean very much. It's about a 10-minute drive from, from the center of the city. Um, and, uh, and this is what Russia decided was going to be their flashpoint to the disinformation campaign. They said, you know what, this is the icing on the cake. This is uh, just another disregard, blatant disregard for Russian ethnic citizens, for the Soviet victory, the way that the Soviet Union saved uh, Estonia from Nazism, which is a, a willful misinterpretation at best of what happened in Estonia in World War II. Um, and through the Russian language media, they, they pushed this narrative. Uh, there's evidence that the uh, the security services, the Russian embassy, were involved in provoking protests. Um, and eventually, these protests erupted into riots. Uh, a lot of the downtown was was smashed up. One person was killed. And for a town like Tallinn, this is really something. You know, there's never any unrest um, in this city. And uh, that was all capped off by cyber attacks. Um, these very rudimentary now, especially with what we're used to dealing with here in 2020, but rudimentary cyber attacks in 2007 that were uh, distributed denial of service attacks. Basically, um, you get a large network of machines that uh, kind of overload a website or a server, um, and they overloaded banks, they overloaded media, they overloaded some government services, and took this tiny country, which had been very, very online. Uh, they did all their banking online in 2007. Estonians have been voting online for decades. They took all that off. Um, and it was clear that, you know, Russia, this was the beginning of something for Russia. And Estonians tried to sound the alarm. Uh, the U.S. and the West didn't really listen. I think there was a lot of eye rolling collectively whenever 
Estonians or any of the other nations that I uh, discuss in the book, frankly, would come to meetings of, of NATO or the EU or the uh, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the OSCE, and, and talk about Russian aggression um, and Russian disinformation. We didn't really want to hear it. And eventually it came for us. So Estonia was, was the warning bell that we unfortunately ignored. And the result of that ignorance over the course of the last decade or so, you write in the book that the U.S., along with some of the countries profiled in this book and venerated European democracies, well on the way to a fact-free version of democracy light, a fact-free fact version of democracy light, that's a pretty stark prognostication. Yeah, you know, the thing that made me write that particular clause <laughs> is that uh, something I really didn't expect to find so much of as I did the reporting uh, for the book. A lot of the countries um, that are dealing with this problem don't seem to recognize that domestic disinformation is just as as potent in fact, perhaps even more potent than the foreign variety. So we have examples from Poland, from Georgia, from the Czech Republic, uh, where the national security apparatus will call out Russian disinformation. But when disinformation is being spread and and embraced by the ruling party, as long as it is meeting their political ends, uh, that that sort of behavior does not get called out. And that should sound very familiar to Americans, because I think we're experiencing the very, very same thing. Democracy knows no political party, uh, or sorry, <laughs> disinformation rather, knows no political party. Uh, the ultimate victim is democracy. And um, unfortunately, these case studies show that uh, we need to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time, and, and we need to embrace those democratic values down to their core, or else, you know, we, we're not going to live in any version of democracy anymore, let alone a fact-free one. Okay, and I promise we're going to get to some of those discussions in a moment. But first, I want to ask you what it was like, if I read the book correctly. You were in Ukraine while you watched the 2016 election attack by foreign adversaries by Russia. Mm -hmm. um, and whatever you believe, listener, about what happened in 2016, there is no question that Russia engaged in a massive disinformation campaign against the United States. What was it like to be in Ukraine watching that happen, maybe even being privy to the techniques and, and wishing people would listen or would have listened to you? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to say that I was a Cassandra. Of course, I had been talking about disinformation before I went to Ukraine. It was one of the things that uh, that motivated me to take the fellowship that brought me there. I I just thought what was going on was was fascinating. And of course, Ukraine had been going through this not only in the Soviet period, but since the Euromaidan revolution in 2013, 2014. Um, so. I, I mean, it was it was hard to watch, frankly. Uh, not only did I experience for the first couple months that that I was in Ukraine, uh, I got there in September 2016. Ukrainians really imploring me, an American, to to pay attention to this stuff and do what I could to bring it up with American audiences. But um, just to to see people shrug off the threat of of Russian interference. Um, the threat of Russian aggression even from a country that was actively fighting a war with Russia was a really stark contrast. Uh, I remember getting into some pretty heated discussions on my Facebook page with uh, folks from high school who actually were supporting Bernie Sanders in the election and uh, sharing links with me to, to talk about how Russia actually wasn't our 
um, wasn't our foe, that Russia should be our ally, uh, sharing links from RT, which is the, the one of the Russian uh, propaganda networks, state-sponsored. Um, and I, I just had to write back somewhat furiously, probably fairly furiously, I would wager, that, you know, I, I just could not, I could not abide that sort of information being on my page, uh, sitting from my seat in Kiev, where, you know, every day I would speak to my boss, the uh, spokesperson at the Foreign Ministry of Ukraine, who uh, was was focused on telling the truth about what was happening at the front lines. She tweeted every morning about how many Ukrainian soldiers were killed in action that day. Um, so the threat of Russian aggression was, was really real. Uh, and I just kind of watched with dread as as we began to realize the extent of, of Russian interference in the election. Of course, everyone had had some inklings over the summer when the DNC was hacked, but uh, but it was a steady drip drip over the next year or so um, when things came into stark relief. And uh, yeah, you have to you have to look at back at it with. Um, just a, a degree of disappointment um, that we couldn't have, have done something or, or listened a bit earlier um, and, and that we've squandered the past four years as well, uh, sitting here in 2020. So that was my next question. Are, are, are things any better today? Marginally. <laughs> um, so the social media companies have begrudgingly started to take some steps. Uh, they're certainly a lot more adept at, at identifying uh, bot and troll accounts and and removing them and that's great um, but I think the tactics have evolved uh, bad actors not only Russia but now China Venezuela Iran they're all part of the game too um, they've started to adapt their tactics to get around the social media regulations that have been put into place uh, to get around ad restrictions, things like this. So we have to adapt as well. Um, and of course, you know, the government response, I think, has been just utterly lacking um, because we don't have a signal from the Trump administration, from the highest office in the land, that this is a priority, that this is a national security threat. Those that are doing good work and really trying to put uh, our informational security first throughout the government, they don't have the support that they need. They don't have the, uh, you know, resources that they need in many cases to, to do this work and make it truly effective. And certainly, you know, any good counter disinformation strategy is really going to be whole of government and pull in all different people with all different por portfolios who have anything to do uh, with the adversary and the, the threat. Um, and that's just not happening because we can barely talk about disinformation in front of President Trump. And in fact, uh, there's reporting that indicates that at his National Security Council meetings, they avoid bringing the topic up. So there's there's no urgency uh, within the federal government. And then even, you know, some low hanging fruit, um, the Honest Ads Act, for instance, which is a bipartisan bill that was originally introduced by Senators Warner, Klobuchar, and McCain in 2017. And, and since Senator McCain passed away, uh, I believe Lindsey Graham has, has taken his spot on the uh, sponsor list. Uh, that bill has been stuck in what many congressional staffers have referred to me as the congressional or sorry, the election security graveyard um, because of the politicization of this topic. It's rather than being a, a bipartisan, nonpartisan issue about the, you know, 
protection of our democracy, that all of this bill would do is, you know, give more transparency about political ads online. Uh, Mitch McConnell has has refused to give that bill a vote in the Senate, even though it has passed the House. And um, that's one of the simplest regulations that we could be pursuing ahead of, of the 2020 election. And we've not even done that. So I don't think we're in a very good uh, situation. Uh, the Federal Election Commission doesn't have quorum to to oversee some of the spending and other regulations that you know have been manipulated by foreign actors in the past. Um, and our media and trust in media is atrophying, thanks in part to the president as well. So, yeah, not not a very uh, positive outlook from me, I'm afraid. I think you you might have to take a number at the election security graveyard, though. I- People who listen to this podcast or read my blog know I've been writing about vote hacking for a long time, and uh, and there are folks who are uh, first in line for fixing uh, the election security graveyard. Why is disinformation or malinformation, why is that different from classic propaganda campaigns that, that the Russians have been good at for a very long time? Part of it's the means of delivery. So social media platforms allow, of course, information to travel farther and faster, but they also allow bad actors, and again, this can be Russians, it can be other foreign actors, it can be domestic uh, individuals or, you know, advertisers, anybody with a social media account and a credit card, or even anybody with a social media account and some knowledge of how the platforms work, can target these messages at the people that are going to be most vulnerable to them. So that means, you know, folks in swing states, it means people who have uh, NRA membership, it means people who are interested in the Black Lives Matter movement in certain cities and uh, and in certain age ranges. Um, and Facebook, and I am focusing on Facebook because it is by far the most ubiquitous of the platforms that we would discuss, you know, Facebook incentivizes that behavior. It's good for them. It, uh, it you know, increases their ability to deliver on their bottom line to their shareholders. Their, you know, their business model thrives on engagement. So they want that that sort of outrageous content uh, to continue to be consumed because that that continues to drive engagement on the platform. Um, so that's part of the the kind of potency of uh, modern day disinformation and how it differs from. Soviet propaganda of yore. Um, the other difference is the tactics. Uh, so rather than just pushing a worldview or a narrative about the greatness of the Soviet Union and the Soviet system, uh, Russian disinformation today spans the gamut of political beliefs. So in the book, I tell the story of Americans Take Action, which was a, uh, a protest group, liberal protest group, formed after the 2016 election uh, that created a, a flash mob in front of the White House on July 4th, 2017, where they went and sang songs from Les Miserables uh, that had been rewritten to fit you know, the Trump era. Um, and the Russian Internet Research Agency, the infamous troll factory, supported them with $80 of advertising to attract people to that protest. Now, uh, that wasn't you know, the typical pro-Trump uh, rally that we've come to think of as Russia supporting. No, this was a complete opposite. They wanted Trump to be impeached, and we're singing about that <laughs> in 2017. Um, Russia supports people on all sides of the political spectrum. They are trying to drive division in our society uh, so that we are so distracted by the domestic stuff going on here at home that we're ignoring 
the things that are going on in Russia, that we are ignoring Russia's adventurism abroad. And if you look at that, I think the strategy has been pretty effective. Uh, let's just think about the last couple months. Russia has been pushing coronavirus disinformation. It has been pushing uh, conspiracy theories related to the George Floyd protests. It has been uh, supporting and echoing a lot of the demands of the Black Lives Matter movement, again, using real fissures in our society to drive division. Uh, all the while, Russia has a constitutional referendum happening that could keep Putin in office for another 12 years. Uh, they appear to have been uh, funding the assassination of U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, they're still in Ukraine. And yet uh, we have looked at Russia in the Trump era as a, a kind of a peer instead of a regional power, which is exactly what Putin wants. Uh, we're thinking of inviting the Russian Federation back to the G7, even though the reason it was kicked out was because it annexed the Ukrainian Crimean Peninsula. Yet Trump keeps repeating this. So certainly, <laughs> I think that disinformation is, uh, is, is doing what Putin hoped it would. It is elevating Russia's status, getting Russia back to the global negotiating table. Um, and hopefully, you know, this this damage isn't too uh, too deep to reverse when, you know, we have another administration that wants to be tough on Russia and punish Russia for the infractions it has committed. But uh, I'm, I'm really starting to wonder at this point. In the book, you also spend a lot of time uh, criticizing tech companies for not doing enough and and making fun of the this game of whack a troll that that they <laughs> engaged in removing fake accounts and but there's this other line that I'd really like you to talk about where you say neither tech platforms nor governments nor journalists can fact check their way out of the crisis of truth and the crisis of trust that Western democracy currently faces. So it's not enough to just simply say that's fake, that's fake, that's fake. That's not going to work. No. Um, and in fact, I think this has become abundantly clear uh, during the coronavirus crisis, especially with the pandemic video, which um, your listeners may remember was viewed millions and millions of times on Facebook. Facebook took actually for Facebook pretty quick action, taking that video down in all of its forms. Um, and instead, that just drove a conspiracy theory about uh, Facebook being part of the deep state cabal that is out to get people who just want to tell the truth. Um, so fact checking in that in that way had kind of a, a reverse truth effect. Um, people who believed that video thought that it was being censored because it was telling the truth, right? And I think what platforms are slowly starting to realize is they can't just take content down. They can't just take fake accounts down, again, playing whack-a-troll. Uh, the bad actors, whether they're foreign or domestic, are happy to sink the minimal resources that it requires to create those accounts again to put that content somewhere else. Um, instead, we need to be giving users more tools to navigate the information environment, this unprecedented flow of information that they are um, finding coming their way, not only now during the coronavirus pandemic, but uh, more broadly in at this moment in, in time, in history. Um, and all of the responses in the book that I deem even somewhat successful start with, you know, an investment in people. It's not just about uh, removing content or creating the right leg legislation or, you know, pushing back at Russia with sanctions. It's about investing in the citizens and investing in trying to fill in those fissures in society that Russia exploits.
I, I found that the most inspiring, but also the most intimidating conclusion from your book, that uh, this is not a, a problem we can solve with a piece of software or with a, a soft, uh, fix at Facebook for a couple of months. This is a, a generation-long problem, and I'm going to read something else that I picked up from your book, which is one thing that's clear from Estonia's experience is that simply making policy without engaging communities or lecturing them that the authentic feelings Russia had exploited to manipulate them are somehow incorrect. So you actually take pains in the book to explain that Estonia actually tried to help Russians not feel like second-class citizens anymore in Estonia, and that's probably the best defense against Russian disinformation, right? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I think it has to be part of a solution. I think people bristle when when I say it's the best defense. Uh, obviously, mm. it, it addresses the, the root causes. I think we still do need to hold bad actors like Russia accountable for breaking the law, um, for instance. All these things are, are important. Uh, but yeah, I think it took it took Estonia a long time to realize that they needed to reach out to those citizens. In fact, they really doubled down on their nascent reintegration efforts um, after the annexation of Crimea because there was some nervousness that Estonia might be next. And, um, you know, they invested in things that, that seem to have nothing to do with disinformation. They invested in educational opportunities for Russian-speaking citizens. They invested uh, in, you know, uh, media, which of course is a little bit closer to disinformation, but tried to create an alternative narrative that Russian speakers could access so that they weren't reliant on state-sponsored media all the time. And then there were some, I hesitate to, performative makes it sound bad, but there were some some things that the government did to indicate their uh, support and care for the Russian community. So um, as I was researching the book, a bunch of government ministries were essentially taking sabbaticals in the Russian-speaking city of, of Narva. The presidential administration itself moved there uh, for a little bit. And it was the first time that the Estonian government really was taking an interest in those citizens and telling them like, hey, you are seen, we care about you enough to do this thing and to, you know, come here for uh, even a short period of time. That was more than any other uh, administrations had, had really spent there. Um, and, you know, I think indications uh, say that it's it's working. There There's more integration between the two ethnicities, the two languages. Uh, if you look at the polling that the Ministry of Culture does in Estonia, Russians are starting to feel more integrated and like they identify with the Estonian culture and identity. Um, and that's becoming more of a European identity as well, uh, because Estonia is part of Europe. Estonia is a leader in tech, et cetera, et cetera. It's not necessarily just about Estonian culture and language. Um, and I think that's a pretty big success. Uh, of course, you know, to really understand if this is working, we're going to need about 10 more years. Um, but but I think, uh, you know, the indications are positive so far. Um, and there's, you know, good data on on the utility of these programs in places like Ukraine as well. Uh, and as a reaction to the 2016 election, a lot of national uh, journalism organizations revisited opening bureaus in places and flyover states like Chicago, even Kansas City, as a, as a small reflection of, of what you're describing. But how would you apply that technique to America? I'm sitting here imagining if the White House moved to Detroit for a year, uh, <laughs> what, would, what would that look like in the U.S.? 
I think it would look pretty different. Uh, I don't know that we'd be able to take those sort of sabbaticals, right? <laughs> um, not with our federal government and the size of it. But but certainly I think, um, you know, there's something to be said for, for building up local bureaus of, of national news organizations. I also view, and I talk about this a lot in the book, uh, I view local journalism as the connective tissue between people and their government. Um, so many state newspapers do not have an, an accredited reporter on Capitol Hill anymore. Um, and I just think of people in Kansas or Iowa or, you know, North Dakota um, trying to figure out what the lens uh, for their life is on the stuff that's going on in Washington or Chicago or L.A. or New York. Um, and without the local news, they, they can't do that. Um, so I'd like to see more investment in all of those platforms. I think that's really key. I think we need journalism as a public good. And I think, you know, the fact that we spend $3 per person per year on our Corporation for Public Broadcasting that funds NPR and PBS, which, uh, you know, they're among the, in some cases, the only local news, the only news available on the radio or, or TV dial. Um, I think that's really shameful. And we, we, as the, you know, if we want to be the leader of the free world, we need to put our money where our mouth is and, and really invest in, in those properties as well. Um, but when it comes to media literacy and education and things like that, we also have a really great public institution in public libraries that have not been uh, really, they've not found their raison d'etre, I would say, in the 21st century. And I would love to see libraries and librarians um, being the uh, kind of harbingers of, of media literacy across, uh, across the nation. They're still among the most trusted institutions in the United States. And I think um, this could be a real vector for reinvestment in the community in this way. And libraries also work with adults, which I think is, is key. Obviously, you know, there's um, a lot of schemes around media literacy in schools, and I think that's great and extremely necessary. But uh, we also need a way to reach voting age people now <laughs> um, before it's too late. And I think libraries are a great way to do that. Is there anything else that you would suggest that individuals should be doing right now in order to uh, improve this situation, you know, just on a, on a one person basis? Hmm. I mean, there, there's a lot of things. I think everybody needs to learn some basic uh, media literacy techniques that they can use online. So one thing I always point to, particularly as we head into hurricane season, uh, where there always seem to be a lot of fake images of, of sharks swimming in the Potomac River and who knows what else, uh, is to do a re reverse image search is a really great tool to see if an image has been misattributed, uh, or if an image, a fake image is cir circulating around the web, um, a reverse image search can show you the first instance of, of that image online. Uh, so that's a great one. Um, I also think, you know, people need to recognize that emotions are really heightened on the internet, that disinformation runs on emotion, and that there are plenty of people who recognize that and that are trying to, you know, play uh, information consumers and social media users. And so when you feel yourself getting really emotional, 
it's time to put the device down. It's time to walk away uh, and perhaps just not engage anymore. Um, I call this informational distancing, just like we have our social distancing. <laughs> we need to recognize that there is uh, a need for informational distancing to slow the spread of especially coronavirus dis and misinformation, um, which is still extremely prevalent online. Uh, I think, you know, just recognizing that that emotional manipulation is happening is something many people could stand to do, myself included. You know, I sometimes find myself responding to trolls on Twitter and I, I just have to walk away. I mute them and try to forget that they exist. And I think that's something everybody could stand to do. And, and that is my last question for you, given what you write about and, and the places that you've been and the governments that you've advised. I'm sure trolls have gone after you. Uh, what is that like? Um, you know, it's, it's a little bit strange. I, I would say that I don't get as much of the public trolling and I'm pretty quick to mute people when I do see them, uh, engaging with me that way. I'll either mute the thread or, or just mute, uh, individual accounts. I don't give them the satisfaction of blocking them though. <laughs> um, but the other thing that's happened to me, and this gets to kind of the, uh, physical security part of the equation, uh, which tends to feed disinformation often, is um, is that, you know, my Google account, uh, I get notifications pretty frequently that it's trying, that state-sponsored hackers are trying to access my account. So I have to take extra precautions related to that. Um, I think that's pretty normal for anybody who writes uh, publicly. But I would say, you know, everybody should have two-factor authentication um, on all of their accounts that have any personal information on it. It's just, it's easy. Uh, it makes your account almost impossible to break into. Um, and it's it's one of the best ways to protect your information and ensure that you're not going to be unwittingly drafted into a disinformation campaign in the future. Um, that and, and having complex passwords. And there are so many password managers on the market right now. I mean, when I switched to using a password manager a couple of years ago, I couldn't believe how easy it was. And, and you never have to repeat a password. You can have super complex passwords. Everybody should do that. Um, just because it's it's a great and extremely easy way to protect your information. Uh, and that can protect you from all manner of trolling, that and your informational distancing. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I've long believed that there's something about computers that make us angrier just because we're on them. And, and I feel like uh, some uh, scientist at the University of Maryland called this computer rage uh, a while ago. And, and that was based on the number of videos appearing of people throwing their computers out the window or whatnot because they were... <laughs> frustrated that they didn't work. But I think that same sort of heightened adrenaline is helping to fuel uh, what you're describing here, that trolling runs on emotion and it really does work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and the platforms, as we talked about before, are incentivizing it. They they profit off of our outrage. So we need to recognize that part of it and the fact that we're being played by these bad actors as well. We, uh, we spent the entire conversation without mentioning the phrase useful idiots, and I feel like that, that's what we just did. So Nina Jankowitz, the book is called How to Lose the Information War, Russia, Fake News, and the Future of Conflict. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Bob.